as always. It's always a little bit more peaceful once the kids go out, isn't it? I was thinking when Kath was saying excuses for not doing kids' ministry while the kids are wrestling down the front, I'm like, that's an object lesson. <laughs> They're crazy. No, kids are awesome. Kids are so awesome. Um, so we're blessed now to be hearing from our amazing pastor, my husband, Josh. Come up. He's pretty handsome for a pastor, eh? Um, Josh had a doctor's appointment a few months back and the doctor asked him, do lots of young ladies go to your church because you're so handsome? <laughs> but he's not just a pretty face. I know he's got an awesome word for us this morning. Um, and I love it when Josh shares. He's always got such wisdom. But, you know, I, I know it's Josh's turn to talk and I'm still talking. I've heard Judah Smith say that Christian marriage should be the hottest thing on the planet. And, you know, if you've got a partner... Rave on about them, encourage them, champion them. And you no wonder that kids grow up these days not wanting to get married or believe in waiting for marriage because sometimes we just make it look really boring and sucky. Like Christian marriage should be a great example for our young people that it's amazing and they have something to look forward to. Hey, who loves their spouse? Anyway, over to Josh. <laughs> Redeemer. Thanks, Sarah. Cool. How are we all? We're all good? Cool. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to bring what I've got to bring today. Um, if the first part doesn't make sense, it's because I started riding it at about midnight one night this week because I couldn't sleep. And not because God had put something on my heart to speak, it's just because I couldn't sleep because I played soccer that day and the adrenaline's still kicking in at 12 o'clock at night from six hours before that. And But what had happened in this soccer match is twice in two minutes I hit the post in like first shot went, bounce out, got the ball again, had another shot, hit the exact same part of the post. And I've always watched on TV when, when in soccer when someone hits the post, I thought that must be kind of satisfying, just having a good shot. You're kind of aiming to get past the keeper and you hit the post. And it kind of makes you sound, it's kind of satisfying to watch. But when you actually do it and it doesn't go in, it's not satisfying. So I was just awake, just going, flipping, thinking about hitting this post twice. And all my soccer career, it was a great career in... What a, I didn't have a career. Um, but I played defence because I wasn't quick enough, wasn't good enough to play up front. So now I'm playing summer soccer, I play up front and I don't give them an option to put me back because I want, it, I want all the glory. And um, I hit the post twice, so well, that's why. So this first part of this sermon doesn't make sense. It's because I was up midnight preparing it in anger about hitting the post. <laughs> um, cool. No, exactly. I don't know. Um, I'm still sore from soccer, that was like five days ago. Um, cool, so um, for the last for, for last few weeks I have, I've had this verse on my heart and I'm going to read it in a moment um, regarding the next generation and, and it's been just on my heart something about the next generation. I was excited what Kath brought this morning about the next generation. I believe it's going to tie in well and as I was preparing this and talking to Sarah about it yesterday, she's ha- she said she had the exact same verse on her heart since light. So I feel God's trying to say something. And I really like that verse from Psalm you brought to Catholic, kind of similar to what I'm going to bring. So it's from Psalm 145, verse 4. Um, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall, shall declare your mighty acts. One generation shall declare your works to another. I, I, I love that verse that one generation shall declare your works to another. And, and it's kind of like just throughout time, that's what we're to keep... Um, 
representing Jesus to keep passing on salvation to the next generation. We have to declare what God's done in our lives to the next generation and so on and so on. And, and I just want to ask the question, are we doing this today and, and have we been doing it? Um, because the question is, why is the next generation being talked about as the least Christian, as the least committed to absolute and moral truth in any other generation in history? If you look at all the statistics, that's what it's saying. So what's missing and what is our role in this? Why, why is this happening? And so um, I want to, I guess, take us through a bit of the journey and, and show how Jesus passed, just um, the example of Jesus through this and, and what our role can be in and all that. And since I went to, I was actually in May, we went up to a national conference. I heard a sermon, um, which I'll um, kind of unpack a little bit later on, about the woman with the issue in blood. And then I heard two sermons when I was over in New Zealand about the same thing, totally different angles, um, totally different meanings in the way they unpacked it. So I'm going to try to bring all three of them together into what I believe God's saying of this. And it's just an awesome passage. But before I do that, I want to... Um, I want to um, just give a bit of context, of, I think that's the right word, of, of the times, what Jesus was living in before this and, and why he did the things he did with this story. Um, and this man, Shane Willard, who I heard speak, and just, just has this crazy understanding of the Hebrew language. It just like, blew my mind the way he drew the things he drew out of the Bible through the Hebrew language. Um, so I'm going to use a bit of his explanation in this as well. So, And I'm just excited to pass on what he had because it's just like was awesome this understanding the context of the time. Normally I kind of can zone out and find that stuff boring, but either way he presented it was awesome. So hopefully I can do it justice as well. So I'm going to read a passage. Um, so I'm going to start with everyone's favourite book out of Numbers. Everyone loves the book of Numbers. It's an awesome book of the Bible. Um, I encourage you to read it. Um, that especially if you want to go to sleep, like start reading it and then you'll be asleep. All right, so Numbers 15, 37 to 41. This is from the New King James Version. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel, that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. Cool? So that's a cool verse. So this morning I'm going to start by talking about tassels. Who's excited? Yeah, pumped about tassels. Um, so um, so uh, do you have that image? Em? So the tassels are those four blue strand things on the end of the garment. So that's a garment that the Israelites used to wear back in the day. And that, and what that garment used to represent, <coughs> excuse me, was um, a miniature scale version of the veil in the tent of the holies of holies. So that was an exact miniature scale version of, I don't know if that one is, but that's what they had back then was this exact scale, this miniature. You know how like, and it was because people couldn't enter into the holies of holies, only a certain few people did it. So this was their way of wearing it. And what... That is called in the Hebrew is called a talit, I think it's how you say it, which means the covering of God's presence. So that, that thing was the covering of God's presence. So that's what's called talit. And you know how like um, you see men, they say they might have a Ferrari, but it's just a little like toy car Ferrari. That was kind of like that to the presence of God. They had a Ferrari, but they just couldn't afford a Ferrari. So they just got a little miniature scale version. So so this is called a talit. Um, 
And on the corner, in the, that Bible verse in Numbers, it talks about putting the tassels on the corner of the garment. So the corner of the garment, in, in the Hebrew language, there's 8,000 words. In the English language, there's 80,000 words. So they can mean a lot of different things. So the corner is known as the kanaf, kanaf, which means quarter, border, hem, or wings. So in the, in the wings of the garment, in the wings of the presence of God's covering, put these tassels. Cool. And, and in that, I'm going to unpack this a little bit in a moment. There's these words for tamay and tahor, which tamay means unclean and tahor means clean. I know in the English it should be the opposite way around. Tahor should be unclean and tamay should be clean. But anyway, so tamay, tamay is unclean and tahor is clean. So we're going to get to that a bit later. But I want to just describe... I think I've got all these things. Yeah. So, so back, back in the day, the Hebrew don't have a word for spiritual. It's not. They don't have that word. And, and um, so if, if we ask today, like in English, how's your spiritual walk going? You're kind of like, yeah, I'm reading my Bible well. I'm, I'm praying. I'm doing that. But if you asked a, a Jewish person, a Hebrew person, how's your spiritual walk going? They'll be like, what are you talking about? Because they don't have that word. And the reason why is because that's their day-to-day life. Their spiritual walk is God is in, in with you Monday. God is with you Tuesday. God is with you when that person cuts you off in traffic. God is with you when, you know, your wife done something and how you act in that. God is always with you. So this talit, this garment that people put on, was kind of a reminder that God is with them always. So, and that, and then so these tassels. I'll just try to describe them for you. So the tassels has five knots in them. And what they represent is the Torah, which is the, um, the first five books of the Bible, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, so that, those knots represent the Word of God. Um, the, in between each of those knots, there's four spaces representing um, the name of God. Um, and I'll try to say this properly. <coughs> the name of God, how in Hebrew, when, when God revealed himself... To Moses and Moses asked, "Who is he?" He said, "I'm Uhavavhe." Is that how you say it? Let's yeah, let's go with that. Just look it up online. If it's not Uhavavhe or something like that, and and in in Hebrew language, those words phonetically can't go together. They don't gel. It's like saying my name is Shilakubatzera. Like you're like what? Like and that they don't actually go to Shivalabashkora. Um, they don't actually go to, together. So, so Moses is like, what? What are you talking about? And Jesus says, I am who I am, which makes heaps of sense as well. Um, but so, so when, when they were looking into this name, they, they describe it as the breath of God. It sounds like you're breathing. And they, they, they say it's the most purest form of the name of God um, because it's holding um, life God's holding through your breath, your life in your hands. And, and when you look at a baby when they're first born, what's the first thing it has to do? It has to breathe. It has to call on the name of God. When you're taking your last, when you're dying in your last breath, you, you're calling on the name of God. When you're sitting down with the atheist and he's telling you that he's not a Christian, that the grace of God is gracious enough that he's breathing the name of God in between the words he's saying that God isn't real. and that. So, so those spaces represent the name of God. Um, there's 613 loops that make up one of those tassels. Um, good luck to the person making them. But there's also 613 commands of God. So the tassels represents the ways of God. 
And at the end of the tassels, there are eight strands, those strands at the end, because um, they couldn't be bothered tying them up properly. Um, but eight is the number of new beginnings, or beggings as I wrote it here. Um, so that represents the grace of God. So these tassels um, represent the word of God, the name of God, the ways of God, the grace of God. And, that, and so what they used to do back in the day, they would wrap those tassels around their hand and then around their little pinky and hold on to them like they were carrying the name of God, the word of God, the ways of God, the grace of God. So they'll carry it around. And back then, the way they view sin to the way that we view sin is totally different. We view sin as it's something that we've done wrong and we can kind of somehow justify in our mind what's wrong and right and, you know, sin's, sin's totally different. But for them, sin was anything that wasn't 100% pure back then. So, so they wrap them around these things of God and if they actually had to sin with their hands, they had to physically unwrap God to sin. So it was also a uh, deterrent from sinning and that. So does that all make sense? You understand tassels now. So there's other there's verses throughout the Bible that talks about these tassels and the um, talif, the garment of God. Um, in Luke, that talks about beware of the Pharisees with the longer tassels. Beware, beware of people who are showing their tassels off too long because they are not who they say they are. Who they are in public is not who they say in private. In um, Psalm 17, verse 8, I think Eb's got that one there. Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings. So what was that word for wings? Knuff. Hide me under the corner of the presence of your God. Yeah. And that. Um, you know, when David was, do you know, in, I think it's in 1 Samuel, um, David was in the cave hiding from Saul and Saul went in the, to relieve himself and um, David's eyes had adjusted in the cave. And, you know, David had this opportunity to call, kill Saul. Saul was trying to chase David down and kill him. David had this opportunity to kill Saul, but instead he cut off the what? The corner of his garment. He cut off the wings, the tassels of God. And when, um, what's his name, Saul went out, finished his business, he would have, he was the leader, Jewish leader at the time, he would have put on this tallit, this garment, and would have grabbed, go to grab the tassels to wrap around his arm and realise that the tassels weren't there. And you can kind of see David up on the hill showing Saul these tassels, waving them, going, look at this. And, and, the, and he, what is he, what's he saying there is David could not touch the presence of God on Saul. That was God's role to take, add or take away. But in cutting off the corner, he's kind of saying, like, the way you're carrying God, I'm not going to touch it, but the way you're carrying it stinks. And I don't agree with it. And yeah, so it's just these awesome... Um, verses. In Malachi 4.2, there's a prophecy. Um, you got that? But to you who fear my name, the son of righteous, righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you show, shall go out and grow fat like store-fed calves. That's different than the one I had. Sorry. It's got wings in it. That's kind of... Um, but you, for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise up with healing in its wings and you will go out and frolic like a well-fed calf. Um, so, if, um, so what's this verse saying? Um, in other words, how do you know who the Messiah is? The Messiah is that there's healing in the corner of his garment, in his tallit, 
In other words, there is healing in the ways of the Messiah carries the word of God, the name of God, the ways of God, and the grace of God. Cool. Right. So now I'm going to get to the, um, the story in Mark 5, verse 21 to 43. And I'm just going to read parts of it as I go. Um, and I'm going to grab a drink before I do. Cool. Yes. All right. So I'll read the first up. Mark five twenty one to forty three is where this passage was. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus Jairus came and when he saw Jesus he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and and live. So Jesus went with him. So from the start, we need to take note here that this story is about Jairus' daughter. It is about the woman with the issue of blood, but we've got to remember it's, it's all about Jairus' daughter. The woman with the issue of blood is significant to the story, but that's not the main point. The main point is about Jairus' daughter and that. And if we, if we miss that point, we miss the whole point of the story, okay? Cool. Um... Make sure I haven't missed anything. Um, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So I'm just going to stop it there. So in the Hebrew, there's, there's four levels in which the Hebrews read the Bible. Um, so the first one is the Fashat, P-A-S-H-A-T, which means simple, the simple way to read it. The second is the Ramez, which is hint. The third is drash, which is search, and fourth is sod, hidden. All right, so there's these four levels, and each level is more complex and goes deeper than the last level. I, if you can't remember for sat, remez, drash, or sod, I like to refer to them as levels one, two, three, and four. Um, so we can read this verse through the, the eyes of level, the, the simple level, but, but there's certain things that the Hebrew people are looking for. Like, so when he says this issue is the women had been bleeding for 12 years, there's a hint for them there. And um, like, why did he say 12 years? He could have said 11 years, 9 months. He could have said 12 years, 2 months or whatever. He could have said... But so 12 is awfully specific. And, that, and when the Hebrew think of the, word, the number 12, they start thinking about the 12 tribes. They start thinking about Israel. So this, this issue is just about the woman... With the, not just about the woman with the issue of blood. It's actually about a nation who's bleeding, who's dying as well. So we need to keep that in mind as well. It's not just about her. It's about a nation. It's about me and you. As well. Um, right. Does that make sense? Cool. Um, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had to spend all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him and the crowd touched it in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. All right, so this is that, remember that tamay, tahor, unclean, clean. So back in those days, you're either clean or unclean. You're either tamay or tahor. And, and so, and like I said, sin was totally different back then to what it is today. In the Levitical law, it was a sin. Um, people, actually, people would profit off, off people's guilt of sin. 
Like there was this, we don't, that ha- doesn't happen today. Um, but it was, a, you know, it was a sin under Levitical law to have dandruff. Like this is how, say like, who has, Shane, you're sweet. James, you're cool. I, I even get dandruff in my beard, so I'm like full-time sinner. I wake up and my pillow looks like a lamington. Um, so there's, hey? Yeah, you can see it on my shirt. I don't know why the microphone's going to help. Um, but so it was a sin to have dandruff. It was a sin to have eczema and that. So that's like, um, if we read in Leviticus 12 verse 2, it was a sin to give birth. Do you have that one, Eb? Leviticus 12 2. Yes. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. In the days of a customary impurity, she shall be unclean. So women, it was a sin to give birth. And that, crazy, hey? Um, yeah, so there's all these levels of sin. They even went further. You couldn't actually touch someone who had sinned. So if you touch an unclean person, if you touch a Tamay person, therefore, then you come unclean as well. It even went further. You couldn't sit in the furniture or sit or, or touch somewhere where an unclean person had been. And that, so... And then, and then also they brought out this other rule that, um, and I heard this from Shane Willard, so I'm going to try to tell it. He is a, if, you, um, if a married couple had been intimate for three days, you couldn't touch where they had been intimate and all that. So it's just Shane Willard said he was teaching this in, in a house and the pastor goes, all right, everyone off the couch, get off the couch and that. And he said this, um, this old pastor was 75 years of, old, years of age, so good on him. I know, well done, sir. Um, but yeah, so it's just crazy how they how they spread, they just just broaden this to make money and that. And um, so, but it was also a sin if you read in Leviticus twelve verse two in the NIV version, it says at the back, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. So, ladies, it was a sin to have your period. So I don't know how they would figure it out. They'd be like, raise your hand if you're like sinning. Can you all, if you too ashamed to raise your head? hand, can you just leave a note on a seat so I don't sit in and become unclean? Cool. Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> but there's all this, this crazy thing is happening. So if we, if we read that last bit I just read about the woman with the issue of blood, with a bit of emotion, you'd realise that she had been sinning for 12, or unclean, not sinning, unclean for 12 years. So that means she wouldn't have been touched for 12 years. She would have been avoided for 12 years. Imagine the rejection, not only the, the physical pain, which, whatever's going on inside her, but imagine the rejection, the, the, just the hurt that this, this poor lady had been feeling. Like, it'd just be, yeah. Um, for 12 years. And it's not because people just didn't, didn't want to touch her. Like, it wasn't because of that. It was because they couldn't simply afford to touch her. It wasn't a like, ugh, you're unclean. It's like, I can't physically afford to do, to do this. Otherwise, I've got to put offerings and, and all that sort of stuff. So just, just um, yeah, would have been hard for her. So, so this woman, when she heard that Jesus was coming, um, and she would have heard about this Jesus guy, she would have known how, um, she would have known a word. She would have known the word of God. And, that, and she would have known that Malachi prophecy that there's, there's healing in the Messiah's wings. So in her mind, she would have been, if I just touch the corner of his garment, then, I, then I'll be healed. 
and that. Um, and if it is this Messiah, then I'll be healed. So she, she was like, and I always viewed this this part of the scripture, and I think I saw something when I was at kids' church when I was little, or or something like that about this frail woman like kind of crawling through the crowd, just trying to just trying to reach out to touch Jesus. I don't think it would have been like that at all, because remember she. No one wanted to touch her, so she would have seen Jesus and like, "What? Excuse me, coming through, coming through!" And everyone would have cleared out the way for her just to touch, touch Jesus. So yeah. Um, verse twenty-nine. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, "Who touched my clothes?" You see, the people's crowd. You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, answered, and yet you asked, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You know, something, something interesting happens in that part. Jesus says, who touched me? He breaks form. That nowhere in the Bible before this, nowhere after it, does Jesus say, who touched me, who did this, power has left me. He, what happens when he normally heals someone? He, no, he, um, what is it? Go, go in peace and sin no more, Should be quiet about this, don't tell, and all that sort of stuff. He actually starts, who touched me, who touched me, power has gone from me. And then he goes on to say to the lady, he doesn't really address the healing. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. What's, what's he saying here when he says go in peace? He's saying go, don't make the last season pay for the next season that you're in. Don't, don't hold a grudge because of the hurt and the pain and what you've gone through from the last season dictate how your future is going to be. Go into the next season. This last season is over. A new season has begun. Don't let it dictate you. Dictate the next season. Go in peace. Um, you know, and then we keep reading. And I'll get back to why it was so significant that Jesus said, who touched me, in a moment. Um, verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Like, that's an awesome way to hear that your child is dead, hey? Like, like it's, it's actually quite shocking the way that they tell it. It's like, put yourself in his shoes and if you heard your child had died, your daughter's dead, why bother this man anymore? Like, it's, it's blunt, it's, there's no compassion, it's, it's, yeah, it's shocking. And then imagine the emotion that Jarius must have felt. And, and why tell him like that? Again... We've got to understand Levitical law. It was a sin, you know, it was a sin to knowingly walk into a room where a dead body was. So that's why they came and tell him, your daughter's dead, why bother this man anymore? He can't go into the room. And, you know, and Jairus was a synagogue ruler, so he had to obey the law. So Jesus couldn't enter the room unless he was already considered unclean. From the general public. Remember, who touched me? Who touched me? Power has left me. Who touched me? From the general public who saw that this, this lady with an issue of blood had touched her, that moment he became unclean in the eyes of people. Right? So, look, how, 
the genius of Jesus. Um, in this story, the one who knew no sin was willing to become unclean for the sake of others. If they thought he was clean, they would have never let him in the room. What looked like a disaster or a distraction allowed Jesus into the room. You know, Jarius, when, when that moment happened, your daughter's dead. He would have been feeling all sorts of things, but one of them would have been anger and blame. And he would have been blaming this woman. Why? Like, you stupid woman, you, you, you distracted Jesus. You couldn't have waited five minutes. You've been bleeding for 12 years. You couldn't wait for five more minutes longer Why? why? why my daughter got healed. But the, the thing is that by the time Jesus got to there, um, she would have died. He wouldn't have been allowed to do the room and we would not have the rest of the story and that. So don't, let, don't be distracted by the next thing that we don't allow God to interrupt our schedule so he can move. Um, all right, keep reading. What was I up to? Um, yeah. There is it. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to him, Why why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was was um, she's not dead she's sleeping this is another example of the genius of jesus um because if you if it's a if it's a sin to enter a room if it's if it's considered unclean to enter a room where a dead person is do you think it's a, a sin is it unclean to touch a dead person and that so she's not dead she's sleeping so he had said to the crowd no she's not dead she's just sleeping i'm gonna i can touch her. i can touch a sleeping person and that so if this if Jesus was wrong in this when he, he when he went to heal the girl and she remained dead, then we have an unclean Jesus, so there's a bit of like pressure if you're anyone but Jesus um so verse forty one he took her by the hand and said to her, Talit heart cum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. she was twelve years old, and this so she was 12 years old. Again, this is about a generation, the next generation. At this point, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Um, he took her by the hand. You know, Jesus was Jewish. He would have had his garment on, his tallit on, and in his arms, he would have had these tassels so when he grabbed her hand, he was grabbing her with the name of God, the word of God, the, the ways of God, the grace of God. Talit kum, little girl, I say to you. Talit hakum, sorry. I, I say to you, get up. Talit. In their minds, it would have been, my child, the presence of God is here. It's time for you to arise. You know, the first part of this story is an older generation reaching out and touching Jesus. The second part, we see Jesus reach out to the next generation. The woman had faith. You know, the woman with the issue of blood, she had faith. If we read the Hebrew correctly, just she had an unwavering faith that he, he would not, not could heal her, but he would heal her. It was his certainty, this faith. And, you know, I feel like some 
not all of the older generation, I'm including myself in this, have this entitled mentality that Jesus, come down, touch me, come down, touch me, touch me, Lord, touch me, Lord. He already has. He already has come down. He's already been. He's already gone before and that. It's time we stop saying, I'm not, it's time we, we stop saying, Jesus, come down, touch me. It's time we actually get out and touch God. You know, I'm going to reach out and touch him. I'm going to see my generation healed. I'm going to see at, this, um, at the same time it's going to make a way for Jesus to touch the next generation. We need to get up and touch Jesus for the sake of the next generation. You know, one of the most profound statements Jesus said in verse 39, the child is not dead but asleep. This coming generation is not dead but it's asleep. And I believe as we reach out to Jesus, call upon his name, declare his goodness, that the generations to come will wake up and step into the fullness of what God has for them. Sarah's going to come up and she's going to finish this little bit and then we're going to pray. Awesome. So good. Let's give Josh a hand. That was so good. And um, like Josh was saying about Jairus, obviously Jesus wasn't one to bow to the conventions of the time, but Jairus was a synagogue leader, so he, wouldn't, he couldn't allow Jesus in as one who had to follow the law. And I just think, isn't that just amazing to see the deeper meaning, how clever Jesus was to orchestrate all of that so that healing could come to a young girl. So let's stand. And um, I think this passage is just so prophetic. And I think... Two things. Maybe if you feel a bit like that young girl in the story and you just feel a bit dead and like hope is lost. I believe that the word of God this morning is that all is not dead. Maybe you're just asleep and it's time to arise. And what was that? That to whom? What was it? Arise something. Arise, my child. Yeah, whatever that was, was just so beautiful. And maybe for some of you this morning, that's what God's saying. Arise, arise. It's time to arise. And I believe God is saying that to a generation, but also for the woman with the issue of blood who was just, there was so much pain and hurt and rejection. And maybe you can relate to her. And this morning, God wants to bring a healing to you just as you reach out to touch Him. And I just love the power of that, that as the older generation reached out and touched Jesus, that it actually made a way for a younger generation to find healing. And I just think that's so profound and prophetic. And it's just, there's so much in this for us as a church, for us as Christ followers for the coming season. So we're going to pray. And I'll just, I reckon you should pray. I reckon you should pray a general prayer. And then if anyone does relate to what I said about that, the older woman or that younger lady, and you'd like prayer, please come forward. We'd love to pray for you. But otherwise, Josh, is going to pray for us. Lord God, we just thank you for the God you are. Lord God, we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord God, we thank you for your ways, Lord God. And and Lord God, we thank you for the example that you showed through this passage. Lord God, that as one generation reaches out and touches you, you're going to reach out and touch the next generation, Father God. And Lord God, we want to declare your goodness from one generation to the next. Father God, and I pray that you help and guide us, Lord God, to do that. Lord God, as we step out and call upon your name, Lord God, may the next generation hear it as well. Lord God, and we thank you that this next generation, even though the statistics are saying one thing, 
Father God, that this generation is not dead, but just sleeping, Father God, and that you're going to wake up a generation to step up and, and step into all that you have for them. Lord God, we praise you and honour you for what you're going to do for this next generation. Lord God, we thank you that, that you've already gone before us, Father God, and, and this generation is going to inherit what, what we've already gone through, Father God. Lord, we praise you and honour you, and we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name. Thought of one more thing which Josh said last night, but he didn't say then. Uh, another minister who spoke at our conference said this God conquers, we possess, as in like the older generation and the next generation inherits. So, how important is us for us to possess the promise of God, to stand in all that He has, because then our kids are going to inherit the blessing of that. How awesome is that, right? We're going to sing, Oh, praise the name. And let's just make this a declaration that as for me and my house, we're going to praise the Lord on behalf of a generation that is just in pain and hurting and who God wants to awaken to His love and His grace. Let's just declare this. And if you would like prayer, please come forwards. Otherwise, let's sing.